0: Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to the book of Hosea. Hosea is one of those little books in the back. We call Hosea the first of the minor prophets. It's at the end of the major prophets, if that helps you find it. So go to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, and those guys, and Hosea will be right on the heels of those books. So as you're turning there, let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you for the richness... And the incredible deep promises we have from your word found in these minor prophets. Father, I thank you for uh, how encouraging they've been. I thank you for the realness of the books. And I thank you for uh, how a book written several thousand years ago we can still take and apply to our lives. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him. And Father, I pray that through this next little bit of time we have together that you would speak through me pray that you would feed your people, and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, the book of Hosea, chapter 1, I'll tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to go somewhat similar to how we did last week. I'm going to read snippets of the book. I'm going to try to help you see exactly what Hosea is doing with the the whole of the book, and hopefully uh, everything will fall into place real nice. Ron, do you mind taking me out of the monitors, if you don't? Thank you. Um, I'm hearing more of myself than i like to I feel bad for you guys having to hear me the whole time But when I hear me, then, it, then it's bad on both of us Anyways, you've got um, The whole story of scripture Which we're following And hopefully you're able to keep up We started in Genesis, we're working our way All the way to Revelation And we're in the books now That uh, we call them on Wednesday nights not, We're not in the wrinkly pages in your Bible We're in the pages where most of us We get to those books and we think Oh, let's get through them quick And get back to the good stuff But hopefully you found through the book of Joel and Amos that there are really, really good things in these minor prophets. Uh, We're at a stage in Israel's history where Israel has been disobedient uh, to God. And now it's time for God to bring about all the judgments that he promised in the book of Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And so all of these uh, curses are coming to head that God promised if the people didn't follow him. And so here we pick up in the book of Hosea. We started out, before I get there, we started out uh, in Joel, and 90 years later, we had the book of Amos. Now, this book is about 10 years on the backside of Amos, and shortly after this book of Hosea, Israel is going to be defeated by the north. Assyria is going to come in, and they're going to absolutely clean house with Israel, and Israel will be no more in the land. That Judah will be down south, but all the northern tribe of Israel is going to get carried off into captivity in Israel. And so this is coming very shortly after the book of Hosea. So you had Joel who started out telling the people repent or all of these bad things are going to happen. Ninety years went by, no repentance. Amos preaches his his um, book and no repentance, and now the book of Hosea and calamity is getting ready to come into Israel. And so, but listen to, on the brink of calamity, what God has to say to his people. You start off in chapters 1 through 3, and chapters 1 through 3 are written in a very unique way that if all of us in this room were Hebrew, we would understand right off the bat. Remember when I talked about Genesis 1-1? That was long time ago. Remember Genesis 1-1 is laid out in a certain way, whereas days 1, 2, and 3 match days 4, 5, and 6, and then you're left with that hanging day 7, and everybody that's reading it in its original context would have realized that something special was, was going on in day 7. Give me a little head nod. Well, this is written in a way that uh, poetry was sometimes written, and so in the first three chapters of Hosea, you have what they call A, B, and C, then you have D, And then you have C, B, and A. You ever line out line up whenever any English lit majors in here? Good. So if I get something wrong, nobody will know. You remember when you would write some sort of poetry? You would go A, B, A, B, A, B, and then C, C. You know how you would format all this poetry? Give me a little head nod. You're looking at me crazy. Good. All right. And so this is the same way, except for he's going to go A, B, C, D, and that's where the exclamation point is, and then C, B, A, and the whole thing is is structured. in a pretty neat way but we're going to focus on d on what the what the emphasis is and so in the first three chapters you have hosea who's a prophet and hosea is told by god i want you to go get a wife i want you to go get gomer and so because you've watched the andy griffith show this is a little bit funnier than normal but anyways hosea goes and gets a wife and her name is gomer and god says that i want you to get a wife who's a harlot who's a prostitute and i want you to marry her And so he goes and he takes that woman as his wife And he brings her into his house And she bears him three children And so they have the the makings of a good family And she has three children And then at the end of having three children She runs away and she goes back to her life of harlotry And she goes away And then what God tells Hosea to do is to go and get her back out of that life of harlotry and make her your wife again. But don't punish her. Don't give her any of those reprimands, but you bring her back and you make her just like your wife who hadn't done anything wrong. And you think, wow, that's a task. Now you think, praise the Lord, I'm living today and I wasn't Hosea. I would much rather pastor this church than be Hosea. Amen? much easier, much easier life. So that's kind of the story of the first three chapters. But what happens is that Hosea and Gomer, their story is going to mirror the story of Israel and Israel's God, Yahweh. Remember back in the book of Deuteronomy or in the book of Judges that God accused the people of whoring themselves out to other gods and he uses this strong sexual language. He says that you've left me for other gods and he uses this sexually charged imagery that shows What a, what a man or a woman who leaves their spouse and goes after other spouses is doing. And he, God says to the people, that's the exact same thing that you're doing to me. And they are in this stage of idolatry now. And so what is the, what is the exclamation point? What's the thing that Israel is doing wrong? And it's in Hosea chapter 2 verse 5. It says, For their mother played the harlot. Chapter 2 verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but she will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And this is the indictment. For she does not know that it was I. And this is God speaking about Israel and Gomer. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. And so you have all of that whole story of Gomer... And Hosea and the the gist of the story here by God is he wants you to know that the indictment against Israel is that Israel has forgotten and Israel didn't even realize that all of the good things that were happening to them were from the hand of God, not all of those other things. And so you see the tragedy here that Israel is inheriting blessings. But they're using those blessings to worship false gods and other gods, which are actually no gods at all. And so that's the problem. And now God says in chapter 2, verse 15, let's go up to verse 14. This is when he's talking about restoring Israel and restoring Gomer. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Acre as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And so now, I don't expect you to remember, but I'm going to see if you do. Anybody remember where the valley of Acor happens? Nobody? If you did, you would think, hmm, how in the world is the valley of Acor? A door of hope for Israel and for Gomer. Well, if you were back in Joshua, I'm going to flip there. You don't have to. Remember, Joshua takes over things from Moses. And Joshua's job is to go into the promised land. And he's going to conquer the whole promised land and take it over. And the Israelites are going to move into the promised land. But the only thing that Joshua has to do is be strong and courageous and keep the law of the Lord. Remember, when he doesn't keep the law of the Lord, things are going to go badly for them. And so this is what happens in the Valley of Achor. They go into Ai. They conquer Jericho. Then they go into Ai, and they get absolutely slaughtered. And Joshua looks around, and he goes, God, what in the world? What's going on here? We're just trying to do what you've commanded us to do, and we've just gotten slaughtered. If this is how it's going to be, don't even let us go out. And then you find out that there's a man named Achan who stole some things out of Jericho. Everything that the Israelites got from Jericho was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, except for Achan kept a couple gold bars, he kept some silver, and he kept a Babylonian robe. And so, this is what happens in the Valley of Achor. Joshua seven twenty four. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters... "...his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and brought them up to the valley of Achor." Doesn't sound good for him, does it? "...Joshua said, what have, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day." "...And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger." Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Acor to this day. And so you get into the book of, of Hosea here, and you find that the Valley of Achor is going to be a door of hope to the Israelites. And so you should be thinking, my goodness, and you think of a door, a door of hope. Okay, on the other side of that door, there's hope. Well, the door looks like a whole family getting stoned and then burned, and then stones piled up on top of them. And you think, how in the world can that be hope? Well, what's going to happen here throughout the rest of the book of Hosea is that God shows the people that their destruction is actually going to be for their benefit. You think, well, how in the world is that hope? Well, it's not hope if you're one of the sinners who are going to be slain by the sword. But if you're a God-fearer, it's hope because the nation of Israel has gotten so defiled in sin, God is going to do to sin exactly what he did to Achan in the sin in the valley of Achor. He's going to gather up all the sinners and he's going to destroy them. And he's going to use the Assyrian army to do it. He's going to bring in the army from the north. They're going to destroy Israel and only the sinners, excuse me, only the God-fearers will be saved. And that's his way of purging out the evil from the midst of Israel. And so this is hope for those people who are actually going to give heed to the words that Hosea is saying. And so you've got the Valley of Acor as a door of hope. Just look at the comparison here between the Valley of Achor and what's going to happen with Israel being defeated by Assyria. The, um, the people fall into sin, right? And then God brings judgment on both people. And then after the end of judgment, what happens? God forgives And then the people are going to move forward in their role as God's chosen people in the power and in the will of God. That's the same thing that happened in the promised land. God cleansed them from their sin. He moved them on uh, further down his mission once the sin was gone. And he's going to do the same thing with Israel again once he purges the sin from their midst. And then he's going to end up redeeming them. Chapter 3, verse 4 says, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince. "...without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days." And so what's going to happen is that God's going to allow them to be destroyed and he's going to take away their temple, he's going to take away their priests, their pillars and all of these things. And when he takes away all of those things, the idol worship and all those things are going to be gone as well and they're going to go into captivity and when they come out they're going to they're going to seek the Lord and they're going to seek David their king. Sound pretty good, right? Well, let's get into the the rest of the meat of the message. Now, in chapter 4, God is going to give his message to Hosea, the people of Hosea's day. And this is the, the um, if your Bible has kind of an outline, it says the message of, just, of judgment. And these outlines, uh, if you have a New American Standard Bible, are really, really good. It, uh, it really does a good job outlining the book. And so you've got the indictment. This is what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, The Lord is bringing a case against the people because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. So God is bringing about all these indictments against the people. And the problem is there's no knowledge of God in the land. Then he goes on in verse 6. He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. He goes on in verse 9. He says, And it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not have enough. They will play the harlot, but not increase, because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. And so these are the things that God has against his people. Lack of knowledge about God. Lack of knowledge of God himself. They haven't been teaching their people, excuse me, they haven't been teaching their children about God. And so God says, okay, but since you've rejected me and my Knowledge, I'm going to reject your children as well. Then he goes on to tell them, but you're going to be punished, and I'm going to repay you, and you're going to eat, but you won't have enough. Because, in the in the end of verse 10, they will play the harlot but not increase, because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Now, how's this sit for us? Just think about it, just for a second. If God was to come to us, or, or you specifically, me specifically, what would he say about your knowledge of the Lord? What would he say? Do you feel like you have a pretty good knowledge of the Lord when studies are offered? Are you, are you geared up and ready to take them and learn more and increase your knowledge about the Lord? Or are you someone who just kind of does the church thing and that's really all I need? How are you doing in passing this knowledge of the Lord onto your children? Or is God going to forget your children because they don't even know him? These are very, very, very valid questions that he has of Israel. And so then he gives the verdict in chapter 5, verse 13. And so because of all this, because they forgot the Lord, because they failed to learn about the Lord, and remember, this is more than just... Oh, they forgot the Lord. God gave very specific instructions in Deuteronomy to keep the people from forgetting about the Lord, to keep the people from going astray. Remember, every time a new king came into office, what was he to do? He was to write out the book of Deuteronomy. He was to keep it in front of him so that he wouldn't stray from it. But they just stopped doing these things. Now in chapter 5, verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness, Ephraim is another name for Israel. Ephraim is a tribe of Israel, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's the biggest tribe in Israel. You've got Judah down south, Israel in the north. Ephraim is the biggest tribe in Israel, so sometimes he refers to the northern tribe as Ephraim. So Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound. Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. But he is unable to heal you or to cure the you of your wound. Now, remember this. Where should the people have sought For healing. Where should the people have sought for any of their needs? Not Assyria, not Egypt, but they should be seeking the Lord. And so instead of seeking the Lord, they're reaching out to Assyria and to these other kings. Then he says in verse 14 For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Then Israel issues out a plea to God in chapter 6 verse 1. And so he's going to come like a lion. He's going to strike them. Remember the things that have been said in Joel and Amos? It's going to be like fleeing from a lion only to find a bear. It's going to be like fleeing and getting into your house, resting your hand against the wall and getting bit by a snake. So all of these bad things are getting ready to come on Israel. And listen to the way that Israel responds. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And so this sounds good, doesn't it? This is a good response from Israel. Do you think that the Lord is going to be pleased with this response? Anybody give me a head nod. Yes? No? Yes. No. Remember, this is the same people who said, Lord, everything you've said we will do. This is the people who always say the right thing. But their heart is always doing wickedness and their heart is always straying from God. And so listen to what the Lord says. Verse four, chapter six, verse four. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah, for your loyalty is like a morning cloud in the dew which goes away early. Ooh, how's that? How's that? Mom, I'll do what you say this time. And you go, no, no. Your loyalty. Your loyalty is to video games, not me. Your loyalty is to your friends, not me. Your loyalty is to your car and all of those other things. And, and you, can, you can envision your conversation with your parents, with, uh, with your kids here and just go, you know, uh, I like what you're saying, but No. I know. Let's just be honest. I know that's not where you are. And he says, therefore, verse 5, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. Then he says this, and this is incredibly powerful, verse 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so God says here, time out. What you're saying is good, but what you feel, no good. He says, I'd rather you be loyal to me than give me sacrifices. He says, I'd rather than you have knowledge of me than bring burnt offerings. Now listen to this very, very, very carefully. What is the easy, there's four things that are listed here. Loyalty rather than sacrifice and knowledge rather than burnt offerings. Listen, it is easy to go into your backyard and to grab a lamb and to bring it to the temple and kill it to the Lord and say all the right things if you live in this day. And so it's easy to give God sacrifices, right? You just go grab something out of the herd, walk it to the temple, give it to the Lord. You look like a rock star, and everything seems great. But he says, No, I'd rather t- I'd rather you be loyal to me than give me sacrifices. And he says, So all during the week. When you have chances to stand up for me And take a stand for me I'd rather you be loyal all during the week Than just on Sunday bring me a sacrifice I would rather me, God Be in the midst of all of your activity during the week Than you show up coming to church If just coming to church If that's your sacrifice If that's the one thing during the week That you do for God He says, stop I'd rather you be loyal to me Than you give me a sacrifice Then he says this, And in the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. And so he says, Instead of you bringing me showy, burnt offerings, I'd rather you know me. I would rather you know who I am, than you come give me a burnt offering. Any couple that's going through rough times, very commonly, the wife will say to the husband, I don't even know you anymore. Yeah, you brought me flowers, but our relationship is severed because I don't even know who you are anymore. And this is the same sort of thing that God is saying to his people. He's telling his people, listen, I was your God. You were my people, but now you've left. And yeah, you give me flowers. Yeah, you give me burnt offerings, but you're busy whoring yourself out to everything that the world has to offer you, and you don't even know who I am anymore. And that's God's judgment to the people. You don't know me. You don't know me at all. Now he says in verse in chapter seven, all of the crimes that Israel has committed. And then in chapter eight, he gives a prophecy of the coming judgment that's coming upon Israel. And so he says in chapter 8, verse 1: Put the trumpet to your lips like an eagle. The enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. If you if you kept up with anything that was going on in chapter... Excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Chapter 28 verse 48 says this. This is in the curses. He's been walking you through the curses and they've gradually been getting worse. But things are so bad now in Israel that the curse in chapter 28 verse 48 is coming true. These are the curses. Therefore... You shall serve your enemies whom the Lord shall send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and the lack of all things. He, your enemy, will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Now listen to this language. This is going to this is going to wake up the people of Israel. He says the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, A nation whose language you shall not understand. A nation of fierce countenance who... Excuse me. "...who shall have no respect for the old, nor show favor for the young." And so he uses in Hosea, like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. And so if you know anything about the Old Covenant, you this eagle language is going to ring a bell in your mind... ...and you're going to think, uh-oh, when the eagle comes, it's bad news. Same thing here. The eagle is coming, and he tells you that the eagle is a nation from the north... ...and so he finishes up all the bad things that are going to happen excuse me he finishes it up what do we call them all of the judgments that are coming chapter 10 verse 1 he gives more judgment on israel chapter 10 verse 1 he says israel is a luxuriant vine sounds good so far he produces fruit for himself sounds good so far the more his fruit the more altars he made the richer his land the better he made the sacred pillars Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. And so God says, I poured out my blessing on them. I gave them and I gave them and I gave them. And the more that I gave them, the more like a harlot they acted. And they they didn't use what I gave them to give back to me. But they used what I gave them to benefit all of these foreign gods and to bring contempt to me. And then he tells them in verse 12, chapter 10, verse 12. Sow, you know, the idea of reaping and sowing, sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accord with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. You have ploughed wickedness, you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. Therefore, a tumult will arise among your people, and all your fortresses will be destroyed. As Shaman, this is a person they would have been familiar with, destroyed beth rebel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed into pieces with their children. Thus it will be done to you at Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. And they're going to get cut off, listen to this, because you have trusted in your way. Remember, when Israel was going to come under attack, when Israel was going to fight against all the other nations, they were to do it God's way. Remember, what he told Joshua was absolutely crazy. You follow me and you keep my law. That's what you do. That's how you win the battle. You follow me, you follow the ways of the Lord, and you keep my law. That's how you're going to defeat your enemies. And now they're at a time where their enemies are on the brink of, of coming to them and they're doing it their own way. God says, if you want to defeat sin in your life, if you want to walk holy, you do it my way. But we? No, I don't I don't like all the things that God says. That's so it's so uh legalistic. I can't do that. I can't I can't put this these burdens on me to do things God's way. I've got to do it my own way. And so people go and they do it their own way. And then what happens? Yeah, it's fun for a season: destruction. It's the exact same thing. The people of Israel are coming under destruction because they did it their own way. They did what was wise in the way of the world as opposed to doing what was wise in God's sight. And when we do that, we are going straight towards a spiritual captivity. And so all of these things are getting ready to happen. The God is getting ready to absolutely cut them off. But then God kind of... It's almost like a... like He would go into a dream at this point if you were watching a show where He remembers old Israel. And he says in chapter 11, verse 1. He's just promised them that he's going to destroy them. And then it seems like he's thinking. He says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. See this kind of like father-son language? I called him out of Egypt as my son. Verse 3. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. And so God kind of has this recollection that Israel is mine. They're mine. I'm the one who taught them to walk. I'm the one who who made them walk upright. I'm the one who brought them out of slavery. I'm the one who bent down and fed them. And so he relents from a little bit of the things that he's going to do to them. But then he says in verse 5, they will not return to the land of Egypt. They're not going to go back into that sort of slavery. But Assyria will be their king because they refused to return to me. And so that's the promise of, um, what are we calling it? The promise of God's love. And then he says he's going to chastise them. Now listen in chapter 13 verse 4. So now he's going to chastise them. He's going to give them a good talking to. He says in chapter 13, verse 4, and we're, we're tying this all together, so just hang with me. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Since the... And you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness and in the land of drought, as they had their pasture and they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie down and wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their chest. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Then he says this, and this is comical. Where then, excuse me, verse 10 Where now is your king? that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested give me a king and princes i gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath and so god sends out a message to them he says listen where are all of the things that you asked for that i told you were bad for you you asked for these things i said that's not what you want that's not what's best for you and you wanted them anyways and so he says where's your king now Where are all your princes now? Where are all of these things that you requested? I took them away. And then he says in chapter 14, God, so what's happened here is that he's he's told the people of their sinfulness, And they're like a harlot who's left him. And then he's kind of walked through this book. And he's told you the indictment. He's given you the judgment against them. But not only does he give you the judgment that's going to happen to Israel. Not only are they going to be cut off and they're going to go and Assyria is going to be their king. But he promises in chapter 14 that one day he's going to restore the people. One day, those people who are godly and who hold fast to the Lord, he's going to restore them. And listen to this in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Listen to what the worship is supposed to be. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. And so how does a person go about being restored by God? They come to God and they tell him that we cannot be saved by any other means. We are going to stop trying to solve all of the problems ourselves, and we're coming to you, and we, like an orphan, want to find mercy. And that's what the people are supposed to come to him and say. They're supposed to recognize that Assyria is not going to save them. That The the way the world says to, to be saved, that's not going to save you. Only you can save us. We're not going to ride on horses. We're not going to rely on our own strength, God, but we're coming to you for mercy, and we want you to save us. And then he says, we're no longer going to say our God to the work of our hands. And so they were. what was going on in Israel is that all of these things were happening, and they were giving credit to them, but it was Israel who was doing the work themselves. Listen, with a couple thousand dollars, we can look like a real active church. We can look like a God-fearing, God-honoring church with only a few thousand dollars. But it's possible for us to be absolutely hollow. We can We can put on all of the right things. But it's here that God wants. And so the people have to come to God. And they have to come to him with all their heart. And they have to rely on his mercy. And then he says in verse 4. When they do that, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. And so God looks at the people and he says, Israel. He would be like Hosea, and Israel would be like Gomer, the harlot who's gone away from him. And he pleads with Israel and he says, Israel, let's have nothing else to do with idols. It's me. I'm the luxurious cedar tree. I'm in where you get fruit. I'm in where you find joy and contentment and all these other things. Stop chasing after all those other things and realize that it's me, God, all who you are supposed to find all of your joy and contentment and all of those other things. And so what's going on here is that God is pleading for the heart of the Israelites to look rightly to him to find all of their needs met. And that's the story for us here today. Are you like Gomer at all? Do you leave God whenever something better seems to be across the way? Think of the things that we will leave the, the safety and the security of God for. Think about the things in your life in the past that pulled you away. So often when people go through rough times, what's the first thing that they drop? The church. The thing that they need to cling to the most usually is the first thing that they leave in search of other things to fix the problems. Brothers and sisters, we have a husband in Christ. I know this sounds a little weird, but even you men, we have a safe guardian in Christ. And whenever we leave him for any sort of sin, whenever we leave him for anything that's not God honoring, we are just like that harlot who leaves Hosea. In search of other lovers. And so the reason that we sing this song. This invitation song. Is it's singing. Oh heart of mine. Come back home. And so the question on the table is. Where is your heart? Who has your heart? Do you know God? Is God someone that you. Genuinely treasure and know? Listen. I know my wife. I know her. Better than any of you know her. And I know the things that get under her skin, and I know the things that make her happy. And you should be the same way with God. God should not be distant to you. But he should be someone that you know intimately, just like you know your spouse. And listen, when you were living in sin, when you were chasing all sorts of idols before you were saved, God was still your husband, and he went after you, and he got you. And he paid a price for you. You see, when Hosea went after Gomer, it cost him 30 shekels and a bushel and a half of barley. That's a lot. If you're a farmer, that's a lot. You're picking barley by hand. You better believe a bushel and a half of barley is going to be a lot. But he went after her, and he paid the price for her to get her back. And God paid a price for you to get you back from the pleasures of sin, except for the cost that he paid was his own son, because that's how much he loves you. And so you are like a wife to God who was running around in harlotry. But he went after you and he paid the price of his only son, Jesus Christ, to get you back. that's the story of Hosea. And so let's go to Lord in prayer. Then we're going to close with our song of invitation. If uh, there's anything that you want to pray about at the altar, you're welcome to pray. Uh, If there's anything that you want to uh, get off your chest at the altar... You're welcome to do that. God will be all ears, and he is ready for you to come home running. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Hosea. Father, we thank you for the story that you portray uh, in a husband going after a wife who's been unfaithful. God, I pray that none of us would ever be found unfaithful in your sight. But God, I pray that when we do stray from you, When we do leave after other lovers, God, I thank you that you are faithful to buy us back and you restore us to a place of prominence. Father, I thank you for the forgiveness that's found in you and I thank you for the faithfulness that you have towards all of your children. Father, help us not to forget where our blessings and our goodness comes from. God, help us to be content in you all the days of our life. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. If you'll stand for a hymn of invitation. I appreciate you guys here this Sunday. It's good to see you guys again. I hope you have a great week. Uh, Don't forget if you're going to come to our men's event uh, Friday night at my house, uh, call me or email me. Let me know somehow that you're coming so we can get enough food. Um, And then don't forget to get in touch with Jesse if you're going to be a part of the ladies' event as well. Brother Ed Thompson, would you close us in prayer?